Well, what can we learn from studying political theory and how can we use wit and humor to persuade people, but also to save our society from the march towards the woke tyranny? I'm Candace Malcolm and this is The Candace Malcolm Show. Hi everyone, thank you so much for tuning in. If you're watching this video on YouTube right now, don't forget to like this video, subscribe to True North, make sure you hit the notification bell so that you get notifications and you never miss any of our videos. If you're watching on Facebook, make sure you like True North, leave us a comment and share any ideas that you have for the show. And don't forget to share this video with your friends and family. Finally, if you're listening to this podcast over on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you enjoy your podcasts, don't forget to subscribe to The Candace Malcolm Show. And if you like the show, please leave us a five-star review. Okay, so sometimes when you're watching the news, and, and this happens to me so often, I'll, I'll see a headline on the CBC or I'll, I'll read a report, and sometimes it's just so absurd, so ridiculous, so offensive, you don't know whether you should laugh or you should cry. Well, my guest on the show today says that you should laugh and that when we look to political teachings, when we look to the ancient Greeks, people like Aristotle and Plato, when we look at the New Testament, when we look to philosophers and writers like Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Hobbes, Mark Twain, or even modern day comics like Norm Macdonald or Jon Stewart, they all use humor and wit as a helpful tool to navigate the world, to warn us on the dangers of tyranny and to persuade an audience. So my guest today on the podcast is Travis Smith. Smith is a professor of political theory at Concordia University in Montreal. He completed his master's and doctorate in political theory at Harvard University. And he was recently a guest on my show. Now, while I was preparing for the show, while I was prepping for the interview, I came across an amusing essay that Travis wrote um, called Thomas Hobbes Comedian. And I really enjoyed it. Uh, when I reached out to him to, to ask him about it, he sent me another essay that he wrote called um, An Introduction to the Politics of Wit, a Symposium, which was also a great read. And so I've invited Travis back on the show to do another deep dive into political theory. So Travis, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome back to the show. I'm really glad to be here today. Thanks for having me on the show today, Candace. Okay, so, so let's talk about comedy. Let's talk about the use of comedy in writing about politics and thinking about politics. Can you, can you first tell me about these essays and, and just basically the idea of, of wit as a political virtue? Right. Um, so whether or not there's any sort of humor in our politics is maybe a sign of its health, right? When politics becomes absolutely humorless, we know that things have gone horribly wrong. Uh, and uh, tyrants in particular are renowned for lacking a sense of humor. So when we see uh, parliamentarians, you know, getting their jabs in, when we see, you know, op-eds written with uh, some wit, uh, when, we, when we have, um, you know, uh, media personalities and comedians who are able to sort of help us not only uh, stick it to the people we, we disagree with, but also help us, you know, understand things a little bit better, make us think twice about things. Those are all signs that things are going a little bit better for our polity. And when things become too dour or, or too angry, uh, it's, a, it's a sure sign that something is really amiss. Well, and, and we see that, I would say, especially in the last 10, 10 years or so, the rise of the sort of nighttime comedy, it, it, it was really big and powerful, say, in the era of George Bush when he was president. Then Barack Obama came around, and I, I feel like uh, comics had a, a tougher time with him. 
uh, they, they didn't really know how to make fun of him. And part of it was because so many comedians are on the political left and, and they saw Obama as an ally. They see Justin Trudeau as an ally. Uh, so, so, so you don't see them poking fun as much. And, and the same thing can be said about uh, Joe Biden today. We still see so much of the political humor being aimed at the right. So, so when you had Trump come along, um, in some ways it was easy for them, but in some ways it was also the bar was so low that you, you just saw so many comics kind of going out of their way to bash Trump, that it wasn't funny. It was like watching amateur pundits that didn't really know what they were talking about. So is, 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 is it possible sometimes um, that, that, that humor can, can, can be used the opposite way and it can undermine political discourse? Sure, right. Well, I mean, with President Obama, there were humorous things about him. Some comedians got really good at doing, doing impressions of his very particular, peculiar cadence. Uh, you're right. Uh, the previous president was a target of a great deal of uh, comedic attack or late night comedy uh, sketches and bits. Um, there is a lot of memeing going on about the current president as well. Uh, but right during the past, past little while, what I, what I tend to think really was the sort of the downfall of a lot of this was the John Stewart style of comedy uh, in which almost every Jon Stewart joke for years had the same punchline. And the punchline was some version of, can you believe these guys? Or what a bunch of idiots? Or look how stupid they are. With always being the sort of, think about how smart we are. Being the, the joke, night in, night out, nonstop. And it's tiresome. And it's, and it's cheap. It's easy stuff. Uh, and, and that became the mode of, of, of that kind of comedy. Now, a lot of late night comedy is also what they call punching down of that kind, right? We have contempt for the people that you are uh, making fun of. Uh, and you're just, as I said, trying to show how stupid they are, how bad they are. Um, and you know, when you look at a classical conception of the role of wit in politics, there's an understanding that there's something very unseemly, you know, very base, vulgar about just punching down, you know, taking the targets that you think are contemptible and just showing how contemptible they are. Uh, and so it's a it's a sign of again the health of things when you have a kind of respect for the people that you are also uh, poking fun at, uh, or um, Right. I mean, on the other hand, punching up can also be something that you need to do when you have, you know, something that's gone horribly awry and you've got people who are behaving oppressively when the, the, the wit can be used in order to try to take down the very powerful when you have almost no other weapons. When you have no, almost no other weapons, sometimes humor is the thing that you can make recourse uh, to, especially in order to get people to, to realize that things uh, are... are um, need to be called into question. Well, and so reading reading some of your essays on the use of, of comedy and wit throughout sort of some, some of the classic political theorists and contemporary political theorists, uh, a, a lot of it seems to be uh, aimed at sort of the um, aristocracy or the religious leaders, like for instance, with Benjamin Franklin, that he he poked fun at the the ideas around religion, not because he wanted to abolish religion, uh, but, but sort of because he wanted to save it. So, can you walk us through uh, a little bit, uh, e either either of the classics or or the more contemporary thinkers, uh, some of the best uses of of comedy to to help uh, persuade an audience or, or prove a point? Right. Well, that's 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 sort of the. What I was saying before about when when the people make fun of those in power, 
uh, if it's sometimes that's the only sort of weapons they might have, but also it can be effective for uh, piercing uh, their conceits uh, and exposing to people that they aren't quite as smart or as virtuous or as righteous or as pious as they pretend to. And therefore you might use wit in order to call their legitimacy into question. And so, right, in early modern times, when the democratic revolution was really getting underway, a thinker like Thomas Hobbes was, you know, had lots of fun pointing out how uh, ridiculous uh, aspects of uh, the regime of the aristocrats or the rule of the church had been. Uh, and so that was an important sort of weapon in his philosophical arsenal. Hobbes is famous for claiming that he's just offering, you know, a purely scientific mode of thinking, uh, purely rational, purely materialistic. Uh, but despite those claims, he is constantly using literary devices, rhetorical devices, especially wit, in order to communicate and, and persuade people of the claims that he's making, the accusations and the criticisms that he's offering. And wit is something that, um, you know, is one of the things that Aristotle in classical political science recognizes, one of the highest social virtues. Uh, he puts it in his list of virtues just before uh, justice. So it's not, it's not higher than justice, right? Justice is so sort of the, the, the pinnacle of the political virtues but it's the one he, he discusses right before justice to indicate how important it is. And my interpretation of that is he knows that because we don't ever actually live in a condition of perfect justice and the natural reaction to injustice is anger, but excessive anger is itself a condition that's unlivable, uh, that we need something to temper anger in order to render living in an imperfect world tolerable. Right? And wit is one of the things that we have in order to help us cope with and also cope with injustice, but also help us fight for greater justice, especially in the face of abuses of power, uh, in the face of um, people whose uh, uh, claims to expertise, wisdom, righteousness, so forth, are exaggerated and pretentious and in deserving of, of ridicule. Okay, let, let's take that that sort of idea from Aristotle and try to apply it to today's political left, because some of the themes you were talking about, the sort of excessive anger, like sometimes the left will, will criticize something and you kind of say, okay, they have a point, you know, this, they, they found something that is unjust, they, they, they pointed out something about our society that, that can be true, but, but it's just that their, their solution to the problem is usually, um, you know, either, either completely changing the system and, and, and proposing something that's impossible, never been tried, um, or, or you just see their sort of righteous anger, you see it in the environmentalist movement, um, in the sort of woke left and, and the uh, quote unquote anti-racist movement, uh, but 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 also that that aspect of humorlessness, like they don't they don't use humor. They, they they cancel people for trying to use humor. Hence why comedians don't even bother to to go to university campuses anymore. So I I, I want you to try to help us um, understand what what the left perhaps could could learn from using more more wit and humor. What they could learn from uh, trying to pick up on what Aristotle was was trying to to teach. Okay, uh, I'm gonna I'm going to be sort of. Uh less ready to just accuse one side of the political spectrum of being guilty of this problem uh, myself, Candace. Uh, but that said, let me say uh, that, right, 
the, you, you mentioned something about designs for trying to transform all of society as if we could, through sufficient reason, sufficient willpower, sufficient imagination, we might be able to impose ourselves upon the social system and re-engineer it and reconstruct it in accordance with what we know to be right and true. Uh, and we could fix everything and treat society and treat human beings as an engineering project uh, to be reconstructed, overhauled, recreated. Uh, and what it, what it requires are, as I said, the very virtuous and the very wise to take charge and repair it. Uh, and, and this isn't something that I'm willing to sort of accuse any particular movement of being exclusively guilty of. This is something that dates back, a concern that dates back even to Plato's Republic, uh, in which the idea of philosopher kings was first pitched as what would be necessary in order to achieve the just society, uh, with an understanding that Plato knew that we actually could not do that. Any effort to try to manufacture the just society would be something that uh, would not only be monstrous, but humorless. Plato's writings are full of humor, and he loves telling stories and, and, and using irony and jokes. And, uh, and so, right, part of why there's a susceptibility to this in modern times, however, is that, uh, you know, you've, you've heard people talk about seeing modern times as a kind of secularization of Christian ethics or a Christian conception of history. And that put human beings in the role of imagining that we could save ourselves and we could manufacture a heaven on earth. As I said, if only we had you know, enough willpower, enough imagination, enough material means and powers at our disposal and sufficient righteousness and wisdom in those in charge. Uh, and that's an attempt to uh, imagine that we could use our reason to manufacture what is actually a comical outcome, right? Comedies are always when there's a happy ending. Comedies are when, despite all appearances, things go well, and even people who are not really up to the task succeed, you know, beyond belief, and people who might not even deserve great happiness all get it, right? And that's, that's comedy. Uh, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a reader of comic books. Uh, I wrote a book on superheroes a few years ago, uh, and comic books are rightly called comic books in some ways because you know the superheroes triumph over supervillains that try to take over the world and impose themselves on us all. Uh, they, of course, the supervillains tend to often believe that they've got some very you know rational design. If only everybody did what I said that they should do, and I had all the power and I was in charge, and I imposed my will, then you know the world would know all the love and joy that only I can bring to it. You know, as soon as somebody thinks like that, they're a madman. They're crazy. They are deserving of ridicule. Um, and so, you know, we have a society that loves our heroes that you know defeat our. Uh, super villainous types, but in politics, we have this idea that maybe some great extraordinary leaders might be able to transform the world and, and, and abolish all the injustice, if only they had all the power and all the trust of the people. Um, this idea that we can manufacture comedy through the imposition of technological reason is, however, from a classical point of view, uh, prone to tragedy. That's not, that's not something that, that works out happily, like you know, the victories of superheroes in comic books. That's something that we could, uh, the classics would tell us that uh, we should fully expect to go entirely awry. And so um, 
Right. Uh, we've, we've seen efforts of a, of a great variety of kind, kinds, especially over the last hundred years, in which people have believed that on account of their nobility, on account of their wisdom, on account of their piety, on account of their righteousness, on account of their virtue, uh, they could fix the world. Uh, and uh, I, I ended that book I mentioned with a claim that, you know, global governance is for supervillains. Anybody who believes that, you know, they could fix the world in that way is somebody we should uh, not trust and, and, and ridicule. Well, uh, I, I appreciate you uh, answering the question that way, because you're, you're right that the, um, the, the anger, the righteous anger, it doesn't just come from one side of the political spectrum. We, see, we do see it on both sides. It's just that, uh, to me particularly, the, the side that I'm concerned about right now um, is left. But I, I, I agree that when you, when, when you think of the, the world in terms of you know, who, who, what the biggest threat is um, to us, the, the ideas you mentioned, I, um, I have a son and he's reading a little um, Spider-Man um, kids comic book and in it the bad guy is just named evil doctor the evil doctor and um, you know it, it's kind of weird Travis because you know in today's world we're told to trust doctors that doctors are good doctors are are the the, the, the authority that we should trust and then yet interestingly in this and, and it's an old spider-man book it's probably from the 80s or something um, you know it's the, the, the idea that the, that the villain is, is an evil doctor, which I sometimes chuckle at when I when I see the latest um, you know news of some doctor um, imposing these ridiculous um, rules and and or, or advocating for endless lockdowns and, and, and I kind of chuckle about the idea of a of an, of an evil doctor. Um, I, I, I want to change gears a little bit and, and just take take a step back and talk about the purpose of political philosophy. I remember when I was a undergraduate at the University of Alberta, my first day walking into a political philosophy course or a history of political philosophy course and my professor saying, you know, why should we bother reading the Greeks? What can we possibly learn from a bunch of old white dead guys? And, uh, you know, the point of the course was to, was to show that there was some purpose in, in reading someone like Plato or Aristotle. Um, this is what you do day in and day out. So maybe you could uh, talk to us a little bit about the relevance of, of, of reading political philosophy and, and what we can learn from, from that today. Right. Maybe I can tell you about how I approach it when I'm teaching undergraduates. Um, and so I started off as an engineering student, right? And so when you when you go into uh, engineering classes as an undergraduate, uh, you're going to be treated to you know calculus and organic chemistry and heat transfer and fluid dynamics and that sort of thing. Uh, where the professor is the expert. Back when I was there, they're still sort of throwing up blackboards, endless blackboards for 75 minutes straight, um, in which, you know, uh, matters regarding which there's to be reckoned no dispute are authoritatively put in front of you, and you are like a, a student, like a machine to figure out how to add this knowledge to your toolkit to solve future problems. Uh, and you're measured on your ability to acquire certainty and exactness, precision, and the application of this kind of knowledge. Um, and every student that's in an engineering classroom is someone you are training to be an engineer. Even if they don't end up being an engineer, end up you know working in sales for a technology firm. You know you still train everyone to be an engineer. That's not how you teach political theory. You don't you don't look at a room of a hundred students who've been uh, put into your intro to political theory class uh, because you know it's a re requirement for their degree as if they're all going to become professional political theorists. Uh, you know, even when I get one student who says, I'm thinking of going into political theory, can I, can I get a letter of reference for a graduate 
the school letter. You're going can I get a letter of reference? I'm like, why, why do you want to go into political theory? And they'll give me some answer. Often it's because, well, I want to spend my time reading and writing, right? I really love to read. And I like to say, well, if you really love to read, get a job as a night watchman or something. Uh, you know, if, you, that, if that's what you really care about. Uh, you know, stu the study of it from a professional standpoint is one thing, but what is it for as part of, you know, citizen education? What is it part, what the liberal education, human education? That's how I sort of tend to think of it. And part of it is when you are, you know, fortunate enough, lucky enough, privileged enough to get to be in university. You know, in the prime of your life, when your mental sort of abilities are at their at their prime, when when you actually are still you know uh, capable of uh, you know uh, thinking quickly and absorbing new ideas and and uh, and still adapting to the world, uh, exposing students to you know ideas that are in some ways familiar but also different, and and should get them to think a bit more broadly and gain some historical sense and get some theoretical breadth so that you're not just caught in the politics of the day and the news cycle and the Twitter verse and the hashtagging and the us versus thems and try to be able to sort of step back and try to perceive things uh, from uh, perspectives that are altogether foreign, not only to you uh, maybe, but to the discourse that prevails today uh, and the and back and forth between the parties that are preeminent presently and be able to sort of, you know, reflect more uh, on, on the human condition more broadly and your place in society and your place in the world and, this, and the status of uh, the things that you care about and the things that you value. There's a real luxury to being able to do that. And so unlike the sort of the training for an engineering career, that uh, undergraduates in that program are engaged in, and, and, and rightly so. I mean, that makes perfectly good sense. When you get to be in a course in which you're assigned old books to read, um, this is not to train you to solve a problem, right? Or to fix anything, or to become the expert that will dictate to others what to do. But it's a, it's a, it's a human activity of just, um, becoming uh, more self-aware and thoughtful. And, and part of that is what I really like to emphasize in the classroom, because we don't do this in politics. We don't do this on the Twitterverse. We don't do this uh, uh, on, on YouTube even very often, which is uh, learn how to, you know, uh, really um, give a generous reading to the people that we disagree with. Try to understand why they're coming from, where they're coming from and uh, abstract away from yourself a little bit uh, and to gain those kinds of skills. Now, of course, those kinds of skills can be practically useful because you can always criticize something uh, more convincingly if you do it from the inside rather than just have a straw man that you attack and caricature and, and, and so forth. If you can really ridicule something, go back to saying about wit before you can really ridicule something if you, you know, explode it from the inside on its own terms rather than just lob grenades at it from the outside. And so there are practical benefits for an education in, in, in you know, philosophy, rhetoric, literature, and so forth. But I still, I guess I'm a bit old fashioned in this way that I think that politics is not actually the most important thing and politics is not everything and that we're human beings before we're citizens uh, and that we're neighbors 
before we are um, members of parties and that there's an essential purpose to be filled by uh, retaining, maintaining, uh, communicating education in things like uh, philosophy, literature, old books that's humanizing and reminds us of that uh, we're more than our party identity and we're more than our, uh, our, our commitments and our sides in one or another uh, debate of the day. So that, that's part of how I look at it, Candace. Well, uh, that's excellent. I mean, you, there's so many things that I could pick up on there, but the, the idea that, that sort of politics in some ways has crept into every aspect of our lives, and this is more of a U.S. phenomenon, but you see politics um, infused now in things like hockey. You know, hockey used to be something where you would go uh, to escape politics and, 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 and just go and enjoy something lightheartedly, and now it's like you know, we hear the woke hectoring uh, throughout sports, entertainment, movies. It's 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 sort of nonstop, and and that's that's also part of a problem. And then the idea of social media, it, it, you know, in some ways it's an opportunity to use wit. You can you can reply to someone, you can say something funny, but at the same time, it's it's also set up for straw man arguments and 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 really um, putting the worst possible spin on what your political opponent is saying. And, and for me, I've taken a little bit of a break from Twitter because, you know, you could find yourself getting too, too, too deep into that. But my, my, my final question that I wanted to ask you, Travis, is um, so back to myself as an undergraduate reading uh, political philosophy in Edmonton. I, I remember I was carrying a copy of Alan Bloom's Plato Republic and a security guard in, in the building um, not, not at the school, the, the apartment where I lived, um, he, he, he asked me what I was doing reading that. And, and he, the security guard was from India. He was a political philosophy teacher in India. He just moved to Canada and he was working as a security guard. And I said, you know, that I'm a political philosophy student or actually just political science. And this is a requirement. And he was like, well, you know, you're, you're too young to be reading that book. You don't understand it. He's like, teachers should be assigning books about philosophy for you to read. You shouldn't be reading the original text yet. You can read that later. Um, and, and I thought that was kind of interesting. And, and sometimes I did feel like I was reading it and I, it wasn't really computing. I wasn't really understanding what I was reading, but um, I, I, I appreciate it nonetheless. And, and I, I like reading about political philosophy as much as I like reading or trying to read uh, political philosophy, although I'm pretty slow when it comes to reading philosophy. But all that is just to say, Travis, is, is there a book that you recommend someone who, who doesn't really have a background in this stuff? What's a good What's a good place to start? Who's a good thinker um, to start in a journey of, of trying to read and understand uh, political philosophy? Can I just ask? Did you Did you get to take a class on Plato with Leon Craig? It, no, it wasn't Leon Craig. It was Heidi Studer. Oh, I remember Heidi. Um, um, what book do I recommend? Um, you know what, let's just go with ones that everybody used to read even just in high school and maybe they aren't anymore. Um, if you haven't read your Brave New World, read your Brave New World right now in the you know, late 2021, that's not a bad start. I'll go with that as, uh, as, as something that everybody, if they haven't read it, they should read it. And if they have read it, they should reread it. Okay, well, that sounds good. That's our uh, required Christmas reading here on the Candace Malcolm Show, and uh, Travis will have to have you back in the new year, and you can you can talk, or we can we can we can do a little book review on it. Sure, that sounds great, Candace. Thank you very much for having me on the show today. All right, thank you so much to Travis Smith for joining the show, and thank you everyone for tuning in. I'm Candace Malcolm, and this is the Candace Malcolm Show.